Hey, this is Perrin. I'm going to be joined on today's podcast by Dr. Samson Liu. Some of you've probably heard of him. He's the founder and CEO of So Dental. Prior to that, he was with Heartland Dental, actually joining them in 1999, back when they had 13 locations. Left them almost 20 years later when they were over 800 practices and well over a billion dollars in revenue. Dr. Liu is an incredibly compelling person, entrepreneur, dentist, and an all-around great guy. He is going to share with you an unbelievable amount on today's show. The reason I'm prefacing today's show, though, is because if you haven't listened to the episode that DeWalker and I recorded last week, and it was episode 27 called Business Strategy for a Rising Rate Environment, you probably want to go back and listen to that before you listen to today's show with Dr. Samson Liu. We cover on episode 27 all the ins and outs of financing, rising rate environment, and a lot of things to think about. And a lot of those things you want to think about, Dr. Samson Liu is going to bring to light today. So if you haven't listened to episode 27, push pause on this one. Download episode 27 in the feed. Listen to it. It's a lengthy one, about an hour long. This one today is to probably listen to them back to back and learn a heck of a lot about finance and the way to position your business for the coming decade relative to debt structure. With that, off to today's show. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you are in the world and what time it is when you're tuning in. This is Perrin Desports, and I'm your host for the Group Practice Accelerator podcast from Polaris Healthcare Partners. If you're an entrepreneurial dentist or other healthcare provider, and you're interested in building a successful group practice, you found your primary resource for some of the industry's best business education. My partner, Dwalker Sinha, and I have decades of experience helping people just like you launch, scale, and ultimately exit successful group practices. In short, we create clarity, confidence, and results. Well, welcome everybody to season two, episode 28 of the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, an interview with Dr. Samson Liu, founder and CEO of So Dental. Dr. Liu is an incredibly compelling figure in the world of group practices. He is a originally an immigrant from Hong Kong to Canada. They moved over when he was 12 years old and he landed in Canada, went to the University of Toronto. After that, he attended dental school at Northwestern University in Chicago. He joined a little business called Heartland Dental in 1999 when they were only 13 locations, stayed with them for 20 years and exited when they were over 800 practices, well over a billion dollars in revenue. And Dr. Liu also grew his role within that business, rising to the ranks of executive vice president and vice president of clinical affairs for Heartland. He's really a guy who's done it all. Now he's founder and CEO of So Dental out of St. Louis, and he's going to tell a really compelling story of his history, as well as the debt recapitalization and growth capital effort we just helped finish with him. Buckle up tight. This is a long episode, about an hour in length, and it is filled with treasures throughout. So make sure you brew a wonderful cup of coffee, get your notepad and pen ready 
the Group Practice Accelerator podcast is on the air. Well, welcome everyone once again to the Group Practice Accelerator podcast. I am your host, Perrin Desports. Thank you so much for joining me on uh, today's podcast. And as I mentioned in the introduction, I'm going to be joined on the show today by the founder and CEO of So Dental, Dr. Samson Liu. Samson, thanks so much for joining me on the show today. Great to have you. Thanks a lot, Karen. It's great to uh, be on again. And it's been a while since we last talked. So I'm very excited to be here and share some of my knowledge and mistakes and failures. <laughs> you're, you're too modest. It has been a while since we last caught up and you have been um, you've been a busy entrepreneur over the last couple of years. I'm just gonna I'm gonna leave it at that, right? Uh, but for uh, for our audience, you know, I, I gave a brief introduction of of who you are uh, and a little bit of your journey in the introduction of the podcast. But maybe from from your lips, Samson, to our audience's ears, do you want to um, add a little bit of color to your story, a little bit about your background and your history for us? Yeah, certainly, Perrin. So. It's, you know, my dental, my dental background is, you know, despite, despite the recent uh, founded company of Soul Dental, I've been in dentistry for 20 plus years. And I was right out of dental school from Northwestern University in 1999. That was like the last century. And we, um, I jumped right into Heartland Dental. And then I was there for almost 19 years, about 18 to 19 years. And I just recently left in 2018 to start Soul Dental. So really, most of my career has been with Heartland. And then only the last four years or three and a half years is with Soul Dental. So it's, it's, it's been quite an exciting journey because I did everything backwards. Most people start as a dentist. They open the first practice and they maybe open a second practice and then maybe they will open a group or join a big practice like Heartland. Whereas I did everything backwards. I go right into joining Heartland Dental and then I leave after 18 years and start my first practice and then my second and so on and so forth. So, so that's my experience in backwards. (laughs) Well, I, I think it's safe to say Samson that you have a, a pretty stellar career at Heartland, and you probably learned a few things along the way that prepared you very well for the journey that you're on right now. Is that a safe assumption? Yeah, it's um, it's been an exciting journey. I mean, just to expand a little bit more on my Heartland dental experience, I was a dentist when I first joined Heartland, and then I eventually expanded my role to be both clinical and administrative. So over the years, not only I continue to practice as a dentist and improving the clinical aspects, which I do love, still practice today, by the way, but I also were able to learn a lot of the administrative aspects of group dentistry. And I believe from then on, the first year I was with Heartland, I really fell in love with the group practice model. I do believe that is going to be the future because of you know, the trend that's going to industry with student loans going up, with the rising cost of capital investments, and just a trend of, you know, maybe partnership versus solo practice, and prof- the, the idea of professional aspects and the quality of care that you can come with group practice model. So I feel like I learned a lot in those 18 years, starting as co director, vice president, and then the clinical vice president. And, uh, but not only do I get to see how, uh, how a group can benefit 
a doctor in the practice, but also the back end of how do you improve the business aspect to you know bring scale to the business, which is what a lot of um, a lot of businesses have to do nowadays with the rising costs is how do you continue to stay competitive and how do you scale your business? So I was very, very blessed to be able to learn those and then segue into my own company and take some of those concepts and principles and take in and implement them again in Soul Dental. Yeah, it's yours is a uh, such a compelling story and and such a an admirable journey. I mean, obviously, we've had the great fortune to know you for uh, well, pretty much ever since you started the started out on your own. You know, started the So Dental venture and have watched your growth um, both up close and from afar. And I, I think that um, journey that you uh, that you're currently on and 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 where you've built the business from inception to where it is right now is. Um, not only rapid, um, but also, uh, uh, you know, a, a journey that um, uh, you can teach a lot of lessons out of too. And, and I think, um, you know, knowing you as well as we do, I, I just, I think it's such a, um, an interesting case study for lack of a better term that we don't, we don't get to see um, too often based on the way that you've um, come into it. Like you say, you kind of did everything in reverse, but you also had a lot of the tools um, uh, built in from your your years of learning the Heartland way. And now you're applying it to the, the business that you founded. So let's let's maybe talk a little bit about So Dental and just in general. You know, do you want to uh, tell us a, a little bit more about the business in terms of where it stands currently? Yeah. So um, it's interesting. You um you know, you're mentioning about how I'm trying to do things a little differently. And and I think that's just the evolution of the group practice model. You know, um, there are just so many models out there. And I think every generation of group practices just try to improve on the, the, the previous generation and try to put their own spin on it as well. And I think I'm no different. So for me, like where we are now, we are, we're about three and a half years in. So this will be our fourth full year and we are in 12 states. We have 42 locations and I think we'll end this year like a little bit above $60 million in revenue. So it's been a rapid growth until COVID and then it slowed down and then now we're picking back up. The, uh, I would say that the, 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 uh, the growth is accelerated by the consolidation trends in the industry. So there's a lot of awareness in the group practice model and how it can benefit a solo doctor in, the, in you know, continue to practice while they, um, they risk their nest gig. So I think that's just an evolution of the model. And I think that carrying, you know, the tailwind for industry is just improving everybody's um, growth rates. But for me, and I wasn't always trying to grow that fast to begin with because the, the, my model is slightly improved upon because when I started growing this company, my goal was to be a more long-term purpose-driven company and not as much as an exit-driven company. So my goal was like, how can I build a company that could be long-term focused and not trying to recap so frequently and yet try to provide the benefits of a group practice model to the solo to the solo doctor 
it was interesting when I say about tools and things, what the tools and lessons I've learned. And then when you said that, it kind of reminded me of when I was growing up, my, my dad would play this game with me where every time he hands me a tool, he, I would try to grab it with my left hand. And then every time I try to grab it with my left hand, he'll take the tool away. So I was like, what's going on? You know, after a while, when I got older, it's, he explained that, you know, I want you to learn to use your right hand, even though you're left-handed, because the world is built for right-handed people. So if you keep trying to grab your left hand, you're never going to learn. And that I didn't realize back then, as I was building my own business now, is that, you know, he's teaching me a lesson. You know, it's like one of those life lessons that you don't know the real purpose of the real lesson until 20 years later. And I'm the same way. It's like, you know, it's just about the right, it's a right-handed world. And sometimes, you know, even though you're left-handed, you have to do what it takes. It's about, you ha- you, you know, it's about the immigrant mindset. It's about, you know, putting in your responsibility on you to make things happen. So for me, I feel like, yes, dentistry is, is a great industry to be in. And there is a lot of dentists that are very passionate about dentistry. And so for me, after I left Heartlands, I want to build something a little different, but I understand where the, where the industry is coming from. But I want to try to do something with my own hands. And that's how I built So Dental to be. Can I be a long-term focused company amidst a lot of exit-driven company? And can I be competitive? Can I, can I accomplish the vision of leaving a legacy on my own with my own kids while I also help dentists leave their own legacies in their own practices. So building that company was my goal setting out to accomplish about three and a half years ago. And so when I did that, that was my first purpose in the company. How do I be an evergreen company? And so the first law of evergreen really is that if you want any practices to last a hundred years per se, they got to, you have got to be able to scale your costs down, you have to be able to scale your business down. So back to your point of, you know, how do we grow so rapidly in the first you know, year or two, we we bought about 22 practices in the first 18 months or so. It's because we got to scale the business. We got to get to scale quick. And so it's just like being a dentist, right? If you wanted to be really good at doing root canals, you got to do a lot of root canals. Would you, lot, would you rather go to a dentist that do one root canal a year or two root canals a year or somebody that does 20 some root canals in a year, year and a half or, five, or sooner than that? So the idea was how do we make as many mistakes as possible while buying practices and fail forward. And if as an entrepreneur, that's the mindset you have to have. So for me, I knew that going in with my eyes open, we got to buy a lot, even though I've never owned a practice in my whole life, because like I said earlier, I did everything backwards, even though I worked for Heartland 18 years and they had 809 practices by the time I left, I've never bought one or owned one. So to me, it's a whole new learning curve, owning one, let alone 22. But the idea was that we can get to scale fast in the first few years. We can make a lot of mistakes and learn from it. We can build the economic engine right away because if we're going to buy practices or build practices, if that's going to be the engine that drives the company, we better be really good at it. And the only way to be good at it is to repeat, repeat, repeat. And so that's the first thing. The second is if you want to outrun the cost of your support center when you first build a support center for your practices, you got to outrun the cost. You cannot outrun the cost one or two practices a year. You got to have a group. And of course, the third thing is that you have to be able to 
negotiate from a procurement side. How do you leverage your cost? And you don't get a significant discount or savings and scale unless you get to a certain size. So for those three reasons, we decided to go fast and grow fast as soon as possible when we hit the ground running. And that's where Polaris came in, right? That's where I met you and Diwaka. And, you know, you guys were a very integral part of that process. So I don't have to, you know, repeat what, what we've gone, gone through together. But, you know, I'm excited we're still here three, four years later. So that's a success story for both of us, but you and for us, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That, I got to tell you, that that was a tour de force because one of the things that we try to impress upon uh, clients, would-be clients, prospective clients, is, you know, taking a second to to really understand what you're trying to build and why you're trying to build it. And, you know, that, I feel like I've repeated that phrase so often that it probably lands a little bit hollow with some people in the audience, but you just went through everything that you thought about, which was the compelling reason that you left Heartland to start the business, then what were you going to build? How quickly were you going to try to build it? Why were you going to make those decisions that you did? What did you what did you anticipate uh, learning from it? And the compelling uh, grounding of the business on, on why you want to do something different that wasn't the norm, especially built for exit. Most of the people who were in a, a fast ramp stage are in a fast ramp because they have a, a ticking clock at the end where they want to exit the business. And yours, um, that's a that's a wonderful uh, dissertation on on business strategy and planning with the forethought um, at the inception phase to get you where you are. And, and like you say, you're 42 locations, 12 states, and about 60 million in revenue. I, I jotted down, and that's that's in a little bit over four years time. Is that right? Yeah, it's uh well this is gonna be our fourth year. So we're right about we're right we're right about two and a half years. So we finally have our fourth full year under our belt. So I mean this it's been a fun ride with all the COVID in between and all the rising interest rate and low interest rate environment. And it's just a I mean, I think I lived the whole twenty years in four years in the last four. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that that's very well said it's like dog years right uh seven years for every one uh in in actuality that's uh that's great so uh let's talk challenges around funding a little bit we'll get into some of the um debt recapitalization effort that that you engaged us for and some uh some of the magic that the walker and and the team worked for you but you know, let's maybe think through the early stages of building so dental, and what were some of the the challenges uh, that you encountered along the way as it relates to using uh, bank funds for growth? I mean, certainly. I mean, there's. I mean, to be honest, there was a lot of challenges <laughs> in the beginning. <laughs> yeah. The, um, but I I think the biggest the biggest challenge with the funding is in the beginning. And I think it's just the environment in general. I think dentistry is a cash flow business. And I think it's just difficult for traditional banks who are used to asset lending to be lending to dentists and dental practices in general because they're cash flow lending. Now, they have no issue usually lending to dentists that want to buy one practice or two practices, maybe even three, because the risk of those loans defaulting are extremely low. So what, hap- what I've discovered is that when I first started 
early stages in the game because I'm a dentist. And when I go buy a practice with years of experience, I have no issue getting bank funding because, oh, they think you're going to buy one, two or three, you know, with my levels and years of experience, that's not an issue. So I think, you know, that is where most doctors feel early success with traditional bank finance because they always have a great relationship with a local bank from financing their first practice for many years. And if they want it on the second or third, you know, most banks are very comfortable with taking on that risk profile. It is after that that we found what happened is the the first wall, I suppose, or first roof where, oh, you know, they say they can lend you, but then things get a little bit more difficult. And then you have to talk about more collateral. And as you know, we we bought rapidly in the beginning. So what I end up doing is just what everybody else does in the beginning of a, as an entrepreneur, where you put everything you have personally or as much as you can personally as collateral to help collateralize it. So we were no different and I was no different. So in addition to bank lending, based on the performance of the practices that we purchased, we also had personal equity involved in collateralizing. But uh, everybody knows that that is not a long-term solution. It's more a bridge gap, a bridge solution to bridge it from the three practices to depends on your level of collateral, maybe five, 10, maybe 20 practices. So it depends where it is. So for me, it's the same thing. We're using a combination of personal collateral and personal experience, personal brand, basically, and then traditional banking to get us through the very initial stages of that. And I believe a lot of your audience, parent, are probably in the same way where they're dealing with various traditional banks. You know, other, other, if, if they don't have any outside partners, equity partners, it's probably some, some type of personal equity, internal cash flow of the business and traditional bank finance to help them through the initial stages of a group practice. Yeah, you're exactly right. And and I think this is a, a scenario that, you know, every every entrepreneur who wants to build a group practice is going to encounter this exact scenario that you just uh, alluded to at some point. It's just a matter of when. It's not if, it's when. And, you know, I think um, they... They, they go through the banking process from the lens of um, a traditional methodology and the traditional scenario of owning one or two practices. And that's the way the banks lend. And, you know, it's not the fault of the banks here because banks, banks love lending money to dentists. They, dentists never default you know, especially those that are one to two locations. It's a, it's a low credit risk profile for a lender to, to loan money to a, a dentist who are, who's going to own his or her practice and work in that practice four to five days a week or die trying, right? I mean, it's a pretty, yeah. pretty low risk scenario there that, um, and, and the numbers bear that out. But when the, when the dentist, uh, the entrepreneur, goes into it knowing that they want to own far more than one or two practices, that's a different kettle of fish. And that's a different type of a credit profile. And and that's really more 
what we would consider business to business lending versus what you might call retail lending when you first start your your career and and i think that's what gets a lot of people in trouble they chase a rate the lowest rate wins they don't know what prepayment penalties are how they're structured or any of the other covenant structures alone and those are the things that get them into a lot of trouble when they try to scale the business like you mentioned before and so this is a a scenario that is is made worse when the entrepreneur is not able to get those cost synergies or revenue generation and and really margin expansion like you touched on in your your first answer um but we see a lot of people coming to us uh, looking for ways to recapitalize the business and and also to to now give some thought towards some amount of committed growth capital. And I mean, I think you actually went through that process um, before you and DeWalker started talking maybe about a, a year ago or nine months ago or something like that. But do you want to kind of Take the audience yeah. through that sort of where you were, if we rewind the tape, like toward the middle to end of last year, and then how you look, you were looking out ahead saying, look, if I'm going to, if I'm going to go from 30 locations to 45 to 60 or more, I'm going to need some level of committed growth facility behind it. You want to sort of take our, our audience yeah. through that thought process? Absolutely. The, um, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, um, in the beginning, you know, the, when you, when I am, grow, when I was growing a group practice in the first year, you know, the goal was just to get a initial group platform together. So the funding was relatively simple and the cost synergies and the proposition to the bank is relatively simple. It is after the first round of financing has dried up and the smoke cleared what happened to the business, where it is, and can you continue to grow the rate that you are versus what the bank think you should be? And are you getting the synergies that you think you are, like you touched on earlier? Are we getting the scale, the cost savings versus what the bank wants to see? And what happened is we went through the first round and we grew rapidly. We got to scale and we got the synergies. However, then COVID hit right before. So we're about a year about 18 months into it, basically, and then we hit COVID. And so that all the bank financing dried up right away, which gave us an opportunity to slow down and reflect on our next phase of our growth strategy. And depending on what group, you know, uh, practice model, you know, one is trying to, to become, for us, we realize that, you know, we are continuing to evolve and become more complex. So, what that means is as our business strategy diversifies, we also have to have more complex financial process, financing process. So for us, as an example, we don't just buy practices. We also build and expand dental practices. And that may be something that one does all the time, 100%. But for us, we want to do both. We want to build practices and we want to buy practices. So therefore our needs are becoming more complex. And we went down this route with our existing bank for a period of time, but the but the complexity of it and the fact that they were never fully um, unlocking the, the potential of our group, because not because of any fault, because they're still using an asset lending methodology and trying to apply to a cash flow business. And then what happens is inevitably there's a miscommunication between what 
we think the value of the company is, or versus the bank thinks the value of the company is, and therefore what is available to collateralize on it. So there's just a miscommunication, and we went back and forth for a while, and we decided that, you know what, I think it is time for a more advanced approach to financing. And that's where, you know, Polaris and us kind of started talking about a year, year and a half ago, where, you know, we, we need to look at our next stage of next stage of growth you know if i want to take the company from where we were to where we are what kind of financing do we need how much committed capital because i wanted to make sure the financing does not impact the business aspects of the of the growth so that means that we have the committed capital so we can go out there and put an loi down for our practice with confidence we have to have committed capital to build the novo practices. We have to have committed capital for expanding existing offices. So there's a lot of different things that we want to make sure that we negotiate into place. And those are all the things that not every traditional bank understands, especially the complexity of a cash flow business on top of the merger and acquisition aspect of a business, which is also complex in nature. Whenever you have an acquisition model, it's always more difficult for bankers to understand. So we just needed a very good liaison to connect and transform what our vision of our business is into concrete terms and negotiate with a banking partner that could help us accomplish where we want to be. Now, I understand there's a lot of different ways to, to approach to funding. There's always, you know, you can always take on an outside private equity partner. You can take on... Mass debt, you can take on a lot of different ways to do it. But for us, we're, we want to make sure that we explore all our options to get the best partner for the best cost with the best fit. And I think that's where the philosophy between Soul Dental and Polaris Healthcare Partners come into place because I felt like we've been working together with Diwaka off and on for four or five years. And you know, we think and believe in a lot of the similar philosophies. And I feel if that's where I feel like um, we can, you know, Polaris can help take, it, take us to the next level. And that's how we started engaging Polaris for this process about a year ago. I think this is a really important point here, Samson. And let me let me drive it home just one a uh, second time for the audience. So what Samson just mentioned, he, he said working with asset-based lenders, which most of them on a retail basis or retail lenders um, are, and, and the way they... Uh, the way a bank, um, an asset lender, uh, makes a, a loan decision to approve the loan or not is based on the assets that the, the borrower, the guarantor, brings to the table. So that's, that's all of our assets uh, compared against all of our liabilities. And you know, it's, a, it's a way for them to feel more uh, certain about um, approving the loan. Okay, and if if anything ever went bad, they have some a matter of recourse about what to go get. God forbid. What Samson's talking about here is the the kind of transition from an asset based lender to one that's more of a cash flow based lender with a forward looking lens on where the business is going to end up. Okay, so we shift from more traditional asset based lending methodology into more um, uh, some level, some ratio of what they call funded debt to EBITDA. Now the lender is is a true business to business lender, um, a, a traditional bank in this situation, and they buy into the vision 
of So Dental and the operator that Dr. Sampson Liu is. They understand the cash flows of the business. They understand the future projections based around uh, an acquisition strategy that he has for his business. And they're willing to sign on and approve the loan with a committed level of growth capital at hand. That's the critical point. I mean, Sampson mentioned that he's grown very rapidly, very quickly probably a lot faster than than arguably anybody else in our audience might have, um, or only very few that that would uh, take on that um, uh, that level of uh, uh, pace, you know, but at the same time, if you're going to build a group practice, you would like to have funding in place that's like conditional pre-approval that allows you to go out and find practices to buy knowing that you've got something that amounts to a line of credit that will fund it versus finding a, a practice you want to buy and then praying that the bank approves it. That's that's a much more um, limited type of a growth strategy, especially for somebody looking to build a, a business as dynamic as, as Dr. Sampson Liu is in this situation. So it's it, everything he just described to you in terms of that uh, transition of mindset and application to facilitate the business plan at hand is critically important for you to understand. So great job in, in walking and talking through that. Um, let's talk a little, let's get in the weeds a little bit <laughs> about the, the data collection process and the you know, we build a book on every client we represent, both for sell-side market as well as uh, debt recapitalization and growth capital services. We call it a confidential information memorandum or a SIM. Um, and we communicate that out to the market. I mean, do, do you, can you give like any color as to what that was like to kind of go through? Because this is a, it's a pretty laborious process that we put our clients through, let's face it. Um, but I think, you know, when you have great outcomes like this, it makes the journey worth the while. So any comments yep. for you from you on that? Absolutely. I think, uh, I think it is, I, so I have, have some, ex, some experience going through, you know, several recaps in previous, previous life. So I understand the importance of having a SIM or what you say, confidential information memorandum. So what, but the gathering process is very tedious, but it is very important because first of all, it really helps you to understand your own company in ways that you never not realized before. So collecting it and making you discover and gather the data itself is a is is really a um, is, is a um, is a way to gauge how quickly can you get information about your own company. And I think to it in itself, it's like the journey is is as important as the end goal. And I feel like that's very true during the same data collection process because the journey, if, if, it, if, you, if you are asked to deliver a set of data and metrics and it takes you two weeks to get it, then there's something wrong with you not knowing your own business and not knowing what data to look for. So I think the data collection process is a very positive thing. And I believe the most important thing is not, not just the fact that you are learning whether you can collect the data in a timely and efficient manner. And that also implies whether you have good control of your company or understanding your company and kind of pulse of the business. But also, it just makes you think about what is important to your lenders now and forever. 
So that means that you're not really doing this one time. You have to go in there with a mindset of, you know what, I will be doing this every once in a while for the rest of my career. And so with that mindset, then it's worth the investment, whatever it takes to make that process a system into a system, internal system, and develop processes around that. Because I guarantee you in every five, 10 years, you may have to do it maybe more frequently than that because banks have their own individual limits and sometimes you exceed them as you grow. So to me, I look at it as like, this is not a one-time thing. This is just the first of many times you're gonna do this. And if we're gonna do it again and again, just like pulling teeth, the more times you pull teeth, the faster and better you get, right? So I'm not saying collecting data is like pulling teeth, but the first time I feel like it's pulling teeth. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a fair way of putting it for sure. Um, yeah. it, 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 but I think it's a, it's a really good point once again, because, um, you know, it's a laborious process. It does get you to, to kind of fine tune your, your own internal data collection, uh, processes. And, you know, the bank that you're partnered up with is also going to, uh, reevaluate the relationship and the health of the business on a semi-periodic basis um, every six to 12 months for, for that matter. And, and they do that because hopefully they continue to extend the growth facility indefinitely for you to allow you uh, further growth. Um, and I think that's a, it's an important part of the process. And it's also part of, you know, the compliance process for lack of a better term. Um, you know, I, I think, the other thing that kind of makes this worth the while for you, um, you mentioned the uh, the term private equity or mezzanine in an earlier answer. Um, you know, in terms of evaluating uh, the the future growth potential of the business and and picking the right capital partner, uh, capital in its broadest sense, when you're talking private equity versus mes debt versus you know traditional bank debt uh, or even non-bank lending, and, and evaluating all those different um, uh, aspects of potentiality for funding of the business. You know, for those that are that are building growth-oriented businesses like you are. Um, you're very confident in your ability to execute. And you're also very confident in the business you're building from an equity value standpoint. And this is this is one of those um, kind of aspects of, of growing a business that I think some, some people uh, are, I don't want to say they're misled, but they, they, they have... Uh, you know, preconceived notions around uh, private equity as being like, um, for lack of a be- for lack of a better term, the finish line or success or like that's the end zone, right? You know, you you find a, ca- a private equity capital partner that makes an investment in your business and you get to ride off into the sunset and you know buy an island in the Caribbean or something like that, and and that's mm-hmm. usually not the case. And I, I think the the inter- interesting thing for you, the level you are, the size you've grown to, and and the the business you came out of, um, you know, having a business that you can control, where you ha- you're creating equity on balance sheet, you're using traditional debt funds to do it, and the cost of the debt funds are what they are, but your ability to create equity on balance sheet at a faster rate 
in terms of growth and what the capital costs you is really a, a point that other people need to, to kind of push pause on a little bit and think through versus seeing private equity as a, a victory lap of sorts. Um, you know, is, is there... Is there something, I, I don't, this is a clumsy segue or a question, Samson, I'm not doing a very good job of phrasing it, but when you look at your business and you you think about the business you're building and you're growing and the equity that you're creating versus the cost of the debt that you're borrowing to do it, how do you kind of maybe think through that as the, the business owner and operator? I think, I mean, I think, um, you know, that's, you know, it's, it's a lot to think about because I think as a entrepreneur building a business, in my mind, the business is somewhat a reflection of the founder and the founder's vision, personal visions and dreams and hopes. And I think a lot of times the company is a reflection of what that is. So I think the first and foremost is why are we doing this? Why are, you know, if you if one is set out to build a company for the sake of like you said, you know, look at private equity as the finish line, then I guess that is your goal and that's your purpose and that's okay. And I think for me, I don't know if that is really a, um, are you are you trying to make a lot of money because that's what been told? But in my mind, if you want, you want to have a lot of money or I guess increase financial wealth, Sometimes holding it like the Warren Buffett way may be a better way to build value than it than it is to flip the house three to five times. But that's just my personal opinion on it. And I think it depends on each person's risk tolerance and you know and financial comfort in risk in uh, how much you want to do risk, how soon. So for me, like I, I just believe that it has. I don't, I'm not necessarily trying to build another top 10 DSO in the world or in the industry or whatever. That's not my goal. So my goal is really about how do you build a business that will be self-sustainable for the long term using sound business principles. So, you know, the industry is getting more competitive, but I also understand that people are willing to invest and pay high multiples for a practice because when they could get a better arbitrage, as long as they get an arbitrage between the exit multiple and what it takes to buy a practice, it might be worth it. So that's just a different mindset than what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to do something a little bit different and it just offer maybe a different alternative to a lot of sellers that, you know what, if you believe the equity can be created over long-term ownership, that's what we're trying to do. And I do believe in that, you know, because once I decide to get on a private equity, take on a private equity investor, then I have to basically take a lot of my time the next decade thinking about the exit and all the all the energy and the time and effort it takes to to do that multiple times over the next you know duration of decade or whatever and i'm not sure i want to do that so for me i think it's like the turtle in the hair you know sometimes slow and steady wins the race so it depends on where you think you want to be and how you want to live and so to me i don't know if it's just a difference in opinion 
versus just a different mindset altogether. But I believe that businesses can be grown on sound principles. The industry has been around as a relationship business for many years. So I'm just trying to take that relationship business into a group practice setting. How do we continue to extend the legacy of dentists in their own practices, just like they were if they were only their own practices, and why I do the same thing? And that's, I want to mirror and align the company's philosophy with the dental practices, you know, and continue to be a relationship business and grow through relationships and network. And um, just like you would of the dentist with patients. So, but yet bring the benefits of a group practice into a solo setting. So I think it can be done. You know, I'm left-handed when I was born and I learned to do dentistry right-handed. So now I am basically both-handed and ambidextrous. And I believe the same thing with a group practice. You know, you can be a dental practice and own your own practice, and yet you can still partner with a group without always, you know, going through the private equity route and still do, do both ways. You know, I think it's possible. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And I think I, I probably find myself in more conversations with people who are build and operate type of entrepreneurs versus build and exit. And, and that's, that's a different, that's a shift um, over the, the last handful of years, uh, honestly, because I think for a while there, everybody just saw dollar signs in their eyes and, you know, wanted to build for exit. But there are a lot more who are, um, who are more of the build and operate mindset, much like yourself. And that, that's a cool thing to see, I think. Um, so, um, obviously you've got the, the committed capital now to allow you to, to execute on this next phase of growth. Let's, uh, let's talk just a little bit about the process and, you know, the experience and, and working together and then the whole, uh, negotiating the deal, uh, aspect of it, because it was a, it was a, a long, a lengthy process um, that ultimately had a, a successful outcome, which obviously we're all very positive about and appreciative of. But I wonder just maybe from your perspective, if you could share some insights for the audience and the, the process side of the experience and how that, the deal negotiation played out for you. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it was, you know, it was there was a lot of heavy lifting that was heavy lifting that was done by Polaris in terms of communicating and negotiating the finer points with the with the par- banking partner, which I think I found very very helpful because a lot of times in my previous negotiations with my bank, you know, I would get frustrated because of certain disagreements and things, but a lot of it is just due to a loss in translation. You know, like I felt, you know, somebody that could bridge the gap, that can speak, I guess the bank speak, and then also speak the business speak, maybe able to bridge the gap between what we're looking for and then what the bank's looking for and how you bridge the gap between the two. So a lot of the negotiation was, you know, very thoughtful and addressed a lot of what we're looking for. And, um, and I think that was probably the unique part about it all, because I don't think that anybody who does not have a deep knowledge of the dental business and financial a financial institution would be able to accomplish that like Duaka and Polaris. So I think that's one of the criteria, selection criteria that I, I looked at when I was going undergoing this financing process about a year and a half ago. And then the second thing is too, um, there was a, uh, with these kind of relationships, you know, it's very important to lay out everything up front. 
and there's there's a lot of complexity and and the built and there's a lot of education up front on both sides and it and i think you know the process takes took a very long time i would say it's almost a year but not quite a year but a lot of that time was purely in educating and informing both parties to get to a certain level of knowledge and comfort about the business about the industry about the you know the the what what the growth will look like for the company and and whether the execution is there and what happens if the execution is not there and all those things so i think once we get past the initial phase of getting everybody on the same page then the rest of it became much easier and in fact once once we finished the negotiation the closing took less than 45 days maybe 30 days and we were able to just paper the deal relatively easily with with our respective councils so I think, so I think it's the part of it is at the end of my conclusion, it's, it's about the communication side that's important. It's, it's the art of the deal, not the science of the deal. And that yeah. matters the most. So. Yeah, yeah I, I, that's very well said. And, and I think, you know, this is, um, uh, again, a matter of perspective. So when we work with clients in this endeavor, um, these are people like yourself who are looking to to find a a growth partner in in a traditional debt mechanism to allow them to continue to grow. That being said, uh, much like in a sell side process, uh, every buyer is slightly different, and in this context, every bank is slightly different. And just you know, the the right bank for you might not be the right bank for somebody else and vice versa, based on capital needs, um, you know, growth predisposition uh, and, and what they're they're looking for, how quickly they want to execute and everything like that. So it's not a it's, you know, a lot of people start out their their career in dentistry and they view banks as being interchangeable parts. And that's why it's simply who's got the cheapest rate. I'm just going to go with the, the bank that has the cheapest rate. Um, and, and there's not a lot to differentiate banks at a retail level. When you get to true business to business lending, middle market and lower middle market lending, there is a heck of a lot of difference in banks. And you want to make sure that you're connected with the right lender that's going to see your vision through um, for a long, long time. And this may be, for uh, for a lot of people, this may be their last banking relationship, something they can set it and forget it, so to speak. So there's a there's a lot of differentiation, and you called it an education process. I think that's a really a healthy way of uh, of categorizing it for sure. Um, now. One of the things that uh, uh, we went through together, um, you know, kind of earlier in the process, and, and it obviously played out late um, uh, uh, through the process, was something called a quality of earnings report. And, and our audience may be familiar with a Q of E because we talk about it really more in the context of a, a sell side representation. And it it's a, a third party accounting firm that validates the financial performance of the business. Um, uh, and, and, you know, is a, an impartial third party between the, the, our client and the um, either the buy side and the sell side process, or in this case, the bank in terms of a recap process. Um, but, you know, for you, it was, 
it's pretty big uh, expense to undertake early on in the process when there's no guarantee of success. And that's something that's not lost on me and DeWalker when we ask our clients to do this. And sometimes we ask you to go on blind faith with that. Do you, can you maybe just talk about the, uh, you know, your, your decision to commit to the the quality of earnings so early on in the process and your, your maybe belief in what it was going to yield on the outcome? Uh, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, the, and the quality of earnings process itself is, you know, is, is, is not new, but it's relatively new compared to the audit process. So, and a lot of traditional banks who are comfortable with asset lending are really only comfortable with lending only if you have audited financials, you know, through two or three years of audited financials, because in my mind, or maybe that's the way it's done, is that asset lending, you know, the, is, is heavily dependent on the audit process and what the audit process brings to it. And it makes sense. However, with a lot of cash flow lenders, they they find that the audit is not sufficient to gather the information about the business as well as in quality of earnings report. So if we are going to move up our our financing partner to the next level and want to grow the business to the next level and truly be viewed as a professional business of managing manage dental practices, then we have to look at ourselves from an asset lending lens to a cash flow lending lens. And if that's the case, then a quality of earnings report is the best process to bring out the potential value or unlock the potential value in your own business more than an audit report would. So that's why it is actually to a seller or a you know a company's advantage to have a quality of earnings report done because it puts your company in the most favorable light for the lender. If you don't do it and you then you actually cheating yourself by just using an audit report and then you're going to be unlocking half the value than the quality of earnings report would. So by that fact alone, you know, when once I realized that, like, you know what, it's a no-brainer to have quality of earnings report done. And then it also helps shed, slight, shed the light too on what you're doing, what you're not doing, the feedback from the report, you know, gave us a lot of things to work on and created a lot of internal systems for future, because like we said before, when we, whenever we do something, we don't expect it to be the last thing we do. We expect it to be an ongoing process. So for me, for us as a company, we're building a lot of internal accounting systems and processes in place where going forward basis, periodically, you know, we can pull those reports and pull those data in moments notice so that it makes the process more streamlined. So, Yeah, very, very well said there. And I mean, that's, like you say, it's it's a it's a sizable commitment based on the financial commitment to fund that quality of earnings report up front, and it it brings so much to light that you can apply internally to your business. But it also, if done correctly, I mean, it it yields a greater upside in terms of unlocking uh, greater potential for funding um, than audited financials would. So it's a um, a significant step, uh, but one that uh, usually bears a lot of fruit with it. It certainly did for you. So that, that was a, a real great thing to see there. Um, so, you know, Samson, you've, you've 
you've been through the process of building the business. You've worked with traditional lenders. You put your own capital into the business to get it going. You've grown at a, a pretty fast rate. And then you've gone through this nine to 12 month process with us of kind of, you know, recapitalizing the business and, and getting a firmer foundation or structure, financing structure under the business to allow for future growth. So, you know, the new capital solution that you now have in place, um, what do you think that um, really means to So Dental? And, and how do you, um, you know, what do you think it's going to allow you to achieve in this next phase of growth with So Dental? Yeah, I think um, that's a great question. I think, for one, having that commitment gives us the confidence to execute and continue to improve and refine our internal processes. So we had a lot of, I mean, we we always had a um, three to five year plan on things that we want to accomplish and things we want to do. And and I think this is give us the ammunition to execute on them in a timely manner. But on the flip side, it's not a blank check where you go and buy whatever you want and act irresponsibly responsible because it is really about discipline growth just and i think if nothing else it should continue the you know helps you execute with more discipline on what you want to accomplish better so to me i view it as a positive thing to have this financing process completed because now we know what we need to do we know how to do it and we have the means to get it done the uh, whereas Sometimes when there's too much capital, it's actually, you know, it makes it harder because you you actually want to grow faster. And I think for me, it, you know, that's something that I don't necessarily look for or care about because I, what I really want to do is to get better all the time in, in my own pace and not necessarily just getting bigger because I have to meet a timeline. So for me, it is important for me to grow responsibly and use the capital and deploy it responsibly because we don't have outside investors and we so we need to make sure that we're constantly and consistently applying sound business principles because that's also what our lenders are looking at as well. So to me, I think it's a perfect match on what I'm trying to do and why traditional bank financing can help me accomplish that because you know we are trying to grow this company carefully, methodically, and and just, you know, for the long term. And so these are the things that I look for. And I think a partner like a traditional bank who is a cash flow lender, you know, business to business lending is exactly what I'm looking for. So I'm excited because now is more focused on the execution side versus on the, you know, financing side. And I think that's where we are focusing on. Yep. Yep. Uh, loud and clear. That's, uh, that's great. Uh, very, very well said. Um, so, you know, again, if we if we think back when we started this process with you nine to twelve months ago, whenever whenever the the start date technically was, um, there was probably very little discussion around rising interest rates. There was probably little discussion around um, uh, inflationary pressures. There's probably very little um, discussion around the dreaded word of a looming recession. You know, the the lending environment and, and the overall economic environment at the end of uh, 2021 
was categorized by an M&A market that was white hot. And a lot of that was born out of zero cost of debt funds. So you fast forward to the end of June, 2022, and things look a lot different now. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. we're, we're all dealing with a lot of different pressures. Um, and, and the outlook is, uh, is decidedly different than, than when you started the process. Uh, you know, if, if you, if you had some advice to share um, uh, with the members of the audience that we've got, um, the millions of people tuning into the Group Practice Accelerator podcast, Samson, and we're we go global on this thing, right? I mean, it's, they're they're tuning in from all over the world, wanting to know how to build a group practice. But seriously, if you if you could share some advice with our audience members. Um, as they think about growing their businesses, and especially in light of the rising cost of capital that is is already upon us and is probably going to continue to increase in the coming months, you know, what are some words of wisdom you could share with them uh, relative to that? I think, I, mean, I think, uh, like, first of all, I mean, like, uh, I mean, I guess it depends on which camp you're in. You know, either you think it's coming into coming out of recession or going into recession, right? So it just depends on. But my my experience personally is that you know if you're in a recession, and you know when you're coming out of it, you just know. Just so so sometimes if you're not sure, then the best thing to do is invest or stay invested in the dental business because in my mind, I think dental industry is one of the most recession-resistant industries out there. And it also ties into the long-term mindset of, you know what, if you're going to stick with it long-term, then these are just short-term up and downs in the stock market and the recession economy. And if you're committed to long-term, then, you know, you're just going to have to expect up and down. So to me, I'm taking a long-term outlook like, yeah, it may be going through a recession, it may be coming out of a recession, but if you're going to hold this for your next 20 years, this won't be the last recession or the last bubble you're going to experience. So therefore, you know, you should take everything with a grain of salt and stay invested in your own company and stay the course of doing what you're doing and getting better at it. And I think that's my best advice is, you know, don't, don't let too many outside influence dictate the decisions, you know, it just have to discover what that is and you just have to stay the course. But for me, I believe in long-term growth over time and not not exit every three or five years. So so to me, like timing is not as important. Now, are there going to be challenges? Yeah, I'm sure in three or five years could be a bubble challenge. Now, from the landing perspective, the sooner a landing process is started, the sooner it can be completed. You know, right now, the outlook is that the better rates are going to get when you're going through it sooner rather than later. So there's some advantage to that. But at the same time, I don't want people to forget, you know, America is still a great you know, economy to invest in and do business. And one of the best in the world. I mean, you look at Canada. I mean, the personal tax rate is, what, 42%. You know, I mean, that's, I mean, so, I mean, it's, it's just, I think it's all relative in what we're seeing, what we're not seeing. I don't think. I think it's still the best place to be. And I think America is the best place to be. And I still think that dentistry is one of the best industry to be in. But from an internal business practices, yeah, I mean, you know, we have to look at what you can do to combat that. For example, if multiples keep getting really competitive, maybe you should think about not buying more practices. Maybe you should think about building more practices. 
because the cost of construction is rising slower than the cost of acquisition. So that's one thing to look at internally, what kind of differentiation you want to be and how you want to combat that. But there's always going to be things like that in business. And there's always, you know, problems like this we have to overcome. So. Yeah, I, I, very well said. Once again, much like the vision comment that you made to, to open up the show today. And, and I think that, you know, sometimes we're, we're, we all uh, subject ourselves to the noise around us. Um, and sometimes we give it too much credence. And, and it's yet one of the other reasons that I don't watch the nightly news anymore or read very much in the newspapers themselves. So, or online for that matter. But, you know, I think for those who are, are committed to, uh, for those who believe in themselves uh, and they understand the business they're trying to build and they know their abilities as an operator to continue to execute, this this is probably going to be a very opportunistic time coming up um, to continue to add to businesses much like you're committed to doing uh, and to expand the footprint of them, be it buy or build or a blend of both. And, and I think as you're, as you're thinking through those um, uh, coming years, I think really having uh, a committed source of capital and the right lending partner in place is critically important to be able to, to have more predictability uh, in the future as the years unfold in front of us. I, I think that's uh, of paramount importance. You, you, you can never, you really can't afford to make this stuff up as you go along. You know, when, when the cost of funds was zero a while back and the government was just printing money and giving it away, then you arguably had more margin for error. Now you don't. You really do have to be a, a good operator. You have to know what your cost of capital is. You have to be disciplined about, uh, you know, your your budget to build or your acquisition um, uh, multiples to pay. Uh, and you got to be committed to the growth strategy at hand and know that you've got a, the funding partner at your hip to do that. And if you if you do have all that solved, you're probably going to see a lot of business success in the coming years um, in spite of what might be going on around you. Um, so I think this is going to be a an interesting handful of years that we we enter into. You know, candidly, uh, DeWalker and I are. Uh, excited about working uh, with our clients through that process. And we're also excited about the opportunities that we think um, that might um, afford our own company, Polaris, in terms of the way we take advantage of, of some of that coming uh, uh, economic uncertainty overall. So, you know, as we're transitioning out of like maybe the the short term uh, aspect of things, Samson, let's talk about just your uh, outlook for uh, your business specifically and and the industry in general. I mean, you've you've been in the industry for uh, twenty to twenty five years now, you know, and you've you've seen a lot uh, come and go. You've been part of a an unbelievably successful enterprise in Ham in, in uh, Heartland Dental, and you've turned around and built an unbelievably successful uh, growing enterprise in So Dental. Uh, what's your outlook for the business, your business specifically, and then maybe just some general comments on where the industry is headed? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I like, I mean, the industry is definitely in consolidation part, you know, it's getting consolidated and I'm sh the runway, you know, depends on what you read and, it's probably end up about a third, 30 to 40% on the high side consolidated. 
which also means there's tremendous runway for industry for group practices to grow. And a lot of people who are aspiring to be group practices, I mean, I don't think that, you know, it can be completely consolidated in even my lifetime. So I think the industry is changing and with change, it always comes with opportunity. So I do believe that, you know, it is a great time to be an entrepreneur, entrepreneur in dentistry. And I also believe that as a dentist myself, being a dentist is an unfair advantage to own a group practice in industry. I feel like, you know, because understanding the nitty gritty of dentistry, you know, truly being a dentist, you know, there's just not, there's just something unique about that, that you can only share with other dentists. And by having that unique connection to other dentists and the network that comes along with it and relationship you can build, I think that is just a really great thing. So to me, I, I don't like it when people say that, oh, you know, you're a dentist, you're not a businessman. And, and I feel like that's insulting because I feel I do feel like dentistry, you know, dentists have an innate ability to run great businesses and don't let anybody tell you that, you know, being a dentist means that you're not a good business person. But that's not true. You can always learn more knowledge, but, you know, but the dentistry, like no one can take that from you because unless they're a dentist. So that's why I feel like, you know, just like my left hand and right hand, you can be a dentist and you can be a business person. You can be both. Don't let anybody tell you that you can only be one or the other. And I think that's the part that you got to believe in yourself. Like I did, you know, I believe that I can do it. And, uh, you know, I end up, you know, being relatively successful at it by, by a lot of people's accounts. But to me, it's like, it's just fun. And I think that's why I still practice today because dentistry is just fun for me. And I think that if you are passionate about what you're doing, you're going to do well no matter what. But, you know, sometimes it's tough. You just want to make a quick buck. Then it's a lot of work, a lot of stress. Might not be good for your health. So that's my one lasting comment. <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. Uh, Samson, this has been a tour de force of a, an interview. I, I really can't thank you enough for your time. You're an incredibly busy guy. Uh, you created so much success for yourself. We're huge fans in addition to being friends with you and um, just really can't wait to see what the the next phase for So Dental uh, has in, st- in store and um, are, are just really honored and privileged to have the opportunity to work with you in this. It's, it's, been, it's been great and I appreciate your time and being on the show with me today. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me. And, uh, uh, we'll see you soon. Yeah, it's our, it's our pleasure, Samson, believe me. And I, I think our audience will get um, uh, uh, several more opportunities to have an experience with Dr. Samson Liu in the, in the coming months and over the, the course of the year. Or so um, so we we'll look forward to unveiling that at some point in the future. But all the best and continued success, my friend. I really, really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Is my pleasure, my pleasure. And uh, for everybody else, uh, if you've got, I, I know that uh, we covered a lot of information in today's show, as we usually do, but this was a, a lengthier one and I knew it would be. I mean, Dr. Liu is a, um, a wealth of information and experience and I always learn things and listening to him and I know you got a lot out of t- today as well. So if you have questions on any of the topics we covered on today's show, uh, please, please feel free to drop me a line anytime at Perrin at PolarisHealthcarePartners.com. Stick around. We'll be right back with some additional thoughts and to wrap up the show. Mm-hmm.